You're listening to an EG Property Podcast special on ESG. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. You're about to hear a panel discussion from our ESG breakfast briefing held earlier this month, asking whether insurance is proving a barrier to real estate achieving its net zero aims. At the heart of the discussion is timber, the benefits of building with it, the challenges of insuring schemes that use it, and the collaboration needed between architects, developers and insurers to bring everyone onto the same page. I was joined to explore the topic by Gareth Atkinson, Director at Civic Engineers, Stephanie Crombie, Associate and Head of Sustainability at Marrow Lorraine, Ben Cross, Development Director at General Projects, and Dominic Lyon, Director at Insurance Broker Gallagher. Stephanie, when we had our, our pre-panel um, discussion about this, you, you you were talking about insurance always having been a challenge. But as as real estate starts to to, to rethink its approach to sustainability, how, how much more pronounced has that become? As we start talking more about um, about materials like timber, for example, how much more challenging have things got? Yeah. So I think um, insurance is a kind of uh, the uh, kind of effect of scenario rather than the kind of cause of the issue. So insurance is based around um, the issues. The two major issues around, for example, timber construction, which are fire and water. Um, and those two things haven't gone away, uh, particularly in the last two years. Uh, they're very prominent, and we have quite a uh, risk-adverse market at the moment um, within insurance. I see Dom nodding. Um, <laughs> so those... T- um, yeah, so I think what we need... I mean, I've kind of said it already. I think the kind of what we're missing is the, the case studies... Um, for how we can really address um, and have a kind of consistent approach to designing buildings in such a way that everybody, insurance, clients, architects, um, are comfortable that we are addressing um, what are perceived to be the big risks, so fire and water. Um, So, for example, you're talking about sprinkler systems, you're talking about treating timber as a kind of non-combustible material in the way that you're using um, surface spread of flame treatment, or, for example, with water, using leak detection systems, and you're using um, kind of natural uh, ways that we can understand where water is coming from if there is a leak, or you're putting those uh, components where you might get high-risk water or high-risk fire in elements that aren't, aren't timber. And that kind of hybrid solution as well, we were having a conversation earlier, is something that... Uh, is very much more comfortable for uh, the market rather than this is timber, this is not timber. And the sort of, in the way that we talk about net zero, we all have a responsibility to do as much as we possibly can uh, to reduce the embodied carbon in our projects. And we will push, everyone needs to push as far as they, as much as they can on those levers that they have within their control. And whether that's insurance or whether that's um, testing, you know, we need to put our neck out in such a way that we are... um, promoting and facilitating sustainable construction as far as possible because it's not going to happen without people uh, addressing those agendas kind of head on. Gareth, you talked about the frustrations um, in, dealing with, in dealing with timber. What have you, what yeah. have you and colleagues found? Uh, is it worthwhile just very quickly saying why timber, why timber? To, ev- <laughs> to everyone? Because um, we're quickly going down that avenue and we're going to be talking about that, I think, quite, quite a lot more here. But... Um, <sighs> Yeah, why, why timber? Um, as going back to the keynote speaker, we're engineers and uh, we love numbers getting our calculators out and we know how to calculate embodied carbon of materials. And we know that using timber has a far lower embodied carbon than, than using steel 
and concrete. But the other aspect about using timber, actually, is that growing timber takes CO2 out of, out of the atmosphere. So although we've got to cut our emissions, we've got massive targets to, within the industry to cut them within 50% in the next eight years, we've got the ability after beyond that, we've actually still got to try and suck CO2 out of the, out of the atmosphere. So building out of a timber, we've got a way to, to grow forests and use that timber to build our cities of the future, which can actually help take CO2 out of the atmosphere in the future. So it's really, really important as a material for us to be considering it more. Um, there's a lot of perceived risks around timber. And you know, uh, there's a lot of this has come out from, from the Hackett Report from Grenfell, which wasn't a timber building, by the way. But you know, since then, the insurance market has got nervous and wants to know a lot more about the materials which we're building out of. Across London, I would say probably 80% of the residential buildings here from historic Victorian Georgian times have all got internal timber frames. They've all got timber floors, timber buildings. So it's nothing new. We've always been used to designing and building in timber, but the scrutiny now is, is massive. And also there's you know, new modern methods of construction of working with timber, uh, working with glue lamb and CLT to, to build mass, mass timber frames, which is a far sustainable way of doing it. So um, I'm trying to get back to the original question, actually. I, I feel as <laughs> I've gone off a little bit there. But um, it was um, the frustrations that we're, we're, we're getting is certainly, I think, over recent years, is where we were starting to build with mass, mass, uh, sorry, mass timber. Um, it's now become more and more difficult because of the scrutiny which is coming through from insurers to be able to build it. I would add that that scrutiny is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I think the conversation we need to have, uh, well, the conversation we've had previously with insurance uh, has been limited. And I was saying to Dom earlier, like, I've never, as an architect, presented to an insurer, presented to clients, presented to agents, presented to shareholders or stakeholders, but I've never presented to an insurer. And actually, I think that conversation across that barrier um, is really important to addressing um, what are the perceived risks of building in low-carbon materials? That's a really interesting point. I mean, Dominic, you, you've, you've looked at this from, um, from different sides of the conversation. Is, is there a breakdown in communication here that's, that's happened? Massively. I don't know where you want me to start. But, I mean, I, I, my, my general view, and sort of bringing it away from timber a little bit, but my general view is, and most of the problems with timber, ironically, aren't to do with timber. They're to do with market conditions and they're to do with, if we're going to get really cynical for a second, 10 or 15 years of a building industry doing things, not communicating it very well to an insurance industry who've just blindly carried on insuring stuff cheaper and cheaper and it's all kind of come home to roost. Um, and that is as much or more, far more in the world of steel and concrete than it is in the world of timber because frankly we haven't really been building in mass timber that point at any scale. So, you know, Gareth mentioned Grenfell and the tragedy that it was, but from an insurance standpoint, that opened up a can of worms so far beyond flammable cladding in terms of, well, hold on, how we didn't really appreciate the whole methodology with which you constructed that asset. What, what are these cavities? What are, you know, what are these composite wall systems that we never really understood? Because we haven't communicated properly for the last 15 years. You know, I've got an architect friend who flippantly always tells me I'm the only insurance guy he's ever met in 25 years. Uh, that's flammable. That's you know very flattering, but also shocking. Um, and so we are on a massive uh, U-turn, I think, in terms of insurers are rightly, for a, the first time in 15 years, asking a heck of a lot of questions, which 
rightly is frustrating, I get that, and especially when it hasn't been happening for the last 15 years, but frankly, it's, it's, it's what needs to happen because without that communication breeds mistrust. And what has that mistrust led to over the years? It's led to a lot of claims, insurers, frankly, losing money and a complete breakdown in the system. So there's a lot of repairing of the whole system that needs to be done with insurers. And, and, and you know, we have, a, we have a part to play in that as brokers. We're guilty. I was saying to these guys this morning, roll back four or five years and you come to me on a Monday and say, I'm starting on site next Monday with a £50 million scheme, still in concrete, here's a postcode, here's my main contractor, no problem, I'll get you insurance. Mm. Come to me with that today, it will take me three months. And that's in still in concrete. And then you add in some complexities around it or you decide to use a hybrid structure, give me six months, please, realistically. Um, oh, and by the way, it was super cheap in 2018 as well. It would cost you, you know, 50 million quid scheme, probably 50 grand. Probably going to cost you 175 now as a starting point. It, it is that, that is where we've gone in the last three or four years. That is how far the needle has moved. And frankly, it needed to in many ways. But then you add in complexities like, oh, yeah, we want to stick some, uh, some electrical panels on the top of our roof that we didn't design for originally. Or, oh, yeah, we want to build this out of wood instead this time because uh, it's more sustainable. But, yeah, it does burn. Um, and insurers rightly are incredibly nervous. And some of them, unfortunately, are just saying no. I don't need to. There's still enough steel and concrete out there for me to insure. Why would I bother? So we're already limited, unfortunately, in the sense of which markets, uh, because you know, as much as it's tempting, you can't tar the whole of insurance with the same brush. But there are, as the same in your guys' worlds, there are pockets of expertise, pockets of passion, pockets of enthusiasm within insurance. And it's about finding those and working with those, educating them, bringing them on the journey, and kind of creating this sea change of culture. So. Sorry, that was a rant, but yeah, no, 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 massive, massive problems, but um, loads of opportunity. But to, but to that point about pockets of enthusiasm, there will be people then that want Stephanie and colleagues to come in and give that presentation that you haven't given to an insurer before. There's a, yeah. there's a desire for that industry, even though it, it, uh, it may I, be thought of as somewhat stuck in the past to change. Absolutely, and no, I would encourage everyone in this room. I, I honestly, hand on heart, haven't had a scenario where I've put a client in front of an insurer and it's turned out badly. Now, I'm sure it will at some point. But it's, in my 10 years of experience to date, I've never had a scenario where I've got a client to present themselves to an insurer and it's been a bad thing. They've always, always, always come out of it going, we as clients learned something as well because we, you know, we heard it from the horse's mouth, the questions, and, okay, that was really interesting. And the insurers go, oh, okay, they're not you know, cynical, horrible human beings out there to screw me and just chuck all the risk at me and run away. They actually really you know, believe in what they're doing. They're passionate about it. How exciting. I'm on board now. I, you know, I've seen the whites of their eyes. It's a real thing. I, I want to get involved. Whereas, you know, and again, unfortunately, in COVID, we've had two years where underwriters have just been able, and brokers to a point, been able to hide behind a screen and just say, oh, no, it's a bit difficult. Ah, no, thanks. Oh, I'm out of office. Oh, I'm making a coffee. You know, it, it's just been too easy to say no. So don't give them that chance. You know, one of my things that I'd love you to take away from today is be proactive and push your brokers and your insurers to say, I want to meet you. I want to talk you through what I'm doing and why. And give it a, give it a bit of a sell. It needs a bit of a sell. It does, because their initial response is going to be, whoa. But it's, at the moment, it's the only con the developers which we're managing to build timber with are those which are really proactive and aligned and aware of the climate emergency we've got, and they know they need to be doing it. And the passion there feels us through and get, getting in touch with the likes of, of Dominic to make sure that the design process is, is being communicated through to the insurers through the early parts. But that's happening on such a, a small percentage of projects. Mm. 
and too many developers coming back probably to your um, Ben to your your thoughts on on the jigsaw puzzle it's just this jigsaw puzzle gets so big now <laughs> in terms of the complexity of getting through to delivering a building and so long and time consuming involving so many people that, that, that generally people are just turning turning away developers are turning away from it just to go to the status quo but we've we've really got to change yeah and i think that you know that's the kind of default to what we know and what we've done before which is you know every time we're sat either with other developers or other consultants you know the first questions that come up around the use of mass timber in construction always are like well how did you get fire approval for that and how did you get insurance and I, I'm pleased you said it takes twice as long to get insurance because it's taking me about four times as long on one of my projects but it's something that you know if I mean we've sort of gone belligerently into it because it's something that we've committed to on all of our major refurbishments that this is what we want to do and this is how we want to deliver it and all of the hurdles that are thrown in front of us our ambition is always to do it insofar as we are on site with a project at the moment where we've literally extended the existing buildings policy to as as far as it can go so that we can get everyone comfortable around the construction and the management of a build a building that's using clt now i'm i'm not saying that we don't have to go through those processes and ultimately i think we're going to end up with a building that's better designed and better managed and has a far lower risk than any traditional construction out there because it's not gone through that the, the level of scrutiny that we've gone through but what you're asking someone to do at the beginning is to say do, do you want to do, do you want to go for this really really difficult thing and you'll probably make the same returns as you would here by building out of steel and on concrete or do you want to do the right thing and at the moment there's no incentive to do the right thing because it's business as usual out there there's no there are some there are there are local authorities within uh, within london who are asking for embodied energy assessments as part of their you know as part of planning conditions but there's no regular as no standardization about how you approach that you know there's still too much self-assessment going on out there for us to be able to say actually no this is definitely the right thing to be doing and you look at other countries on the continent where they're building in mass timber and you dig a little deeper and then you find that those those projects are government subsidized so therefore anything that you're they're delivering that's pioneering is backed by the government and someone else is there just to you know to help it along because it's pioneering here private sector problem and when you're asking the private sector to make a loss on projects where so much money so much investment so much energy goes into that and so much hard work I mean, we're not you know at the at the end of the day profit profit and purpose can go hand in hand and we're not against that but there are so many people who just look at it and go well i can make, I can make the same amount if not more by doing the wrong thing. So why, why wouldn't I just do that? I mean, in, in, for you and colleagues in choosing to do the right thing, and you, you, you've talked across sort of multiple schemes, what have, the, what have the lessons been? And when you've got those hurdles in front of you, and we've talked about the time, um, you know, the time scale slipping out, the amount of um, 
time that's spent on this. What have your learnings been over sort of various projects? So uh, getting the right, the right team from the outset. And um, I think one of the, one of the challenges is, is get it, you know, this is, this, is, this is kind of brave new world thinking and there are only a certain number of organizations out there that have the expertise, the IP, the PI to be able to look at these things and say, yep, this is, this is fine from charring burnout um, from, a, from a risk management point of view. And that's an issue because you end up employing five fire consultants on a project, want to, want to do the base design, want to third party review it, one, one in Austria, another from the um, London Fire Brigade, and then a fifth one from the insurer. Can't wait for my sixth one. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're, you, there are so many, that you, unless you know to go to the right organization in the first place, you're always just going to have hurdle upon hurdle, which is ultimately going to affect the bottom line and ultimately just push you towards doing the wrong thing. Uh, so getting the right team, getting the right mindset uh, is very much um, part of the agenda. But I think, you know, I would recognize that where we are currently is the insurer needs to be part of that conversation. And where we've been historically is you, you take a scheme to stage three design, you tender it, you get a contractor on board, you complete stage four, you start to move on to site. At that point in time, you've got sufficient information to take it to the regulatory through the regulatory approvals process, you think, oh, actually, it's probably worth getting some insurance. And that's too late. That is far, far too late. You need to be thinking about it in stage two. And you need to be bringing those people together and having a collective, collaborative conversation about how it can be better. And there needs to be expectation management. You can't have a construction management plan at stage two. You can have the, you can have the framework around this is how we might do things or you can tell us how you would like things to be done. But the way in which insurance is brokered, the way in which projects are procured, it's no longer a linear process. You need to be thinking about those things at the front end. Dominic, are you seeing the conversations beginning earlier? Yeah, yeah I, I, I was just smiling to myself because I, I sat around a table yesterday talking about a master plan that won't have a spade in the ground until 2025. Um, and I thought, blimey, it, even, even though I preach about early engagement, this might be slightly too early. Um, so, but I can't say that because I don't want to put them off. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, we've probably got six or seven, what I would describe as major, all hybrid timber system uh, schemes on our desk at the moment. One has just started putting a spade in the ground, but the other five that I can think of are at least six months away from each actually starting on site. And some of them are 18 to 24 months away from starting on site. And we're fully engaged. I mean, it, 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 I know everyone says everyone should be engaged early, and I know it's like an overused term and, and gets boring to hear after a while, but it, it really is true because the only way, unfortunately, at the moment that you will get an equitable insurance solution for your scheme is to engage insurers early, get them to genuinely buy into what you're doing, get them to not input into design, but at least be allowed to voice and, and provide commentary on your design. 
As an, I, I find it very annoying, but insurers always say, oh, no, we're not going to tell you how to design, but we're just going to critique everything you do. Unfortunately, again, that's just the way of the world at the moment. They're never going to tell you how to build buildings, but they're going to tell you it's wrong when you do it. Um, but at least give them that opportunity, because then if you've gone to them and said, right, this is our stage two, this is what we're thinking about, what do you think? They will hopefully, if you've engaged the right people at the right time, come back with some really constructive feedback. And at that point, they're bought in in a way that they've never been before. And they go, OK, no, we can get on board with this. Right. Consider using a concrete core. Consider, you know, consider a concrete, basically consider using concrete everywhere is probably going to be their response. But um, no, they will hopefully come back with some genuinely helpful feedback that allows you to, to take that scheme forward, at least with some confidence. Unfortunately, you'll never get a quote out of an insurer any more than about 30 days before you start on site these days. That is just the reality of the industry and how quickly it changes. But you can get 99.9% .9 confidence that you've got an insurer on board absolutely 12 or 18 months out. And it's frankly, is what you need to do at the moment. It is just painful, but it is, it is the way. But there are a load of pieces of work going on in various places in the background around standardization and around kind of road mapping this and... Um, Hopefully, you'll see the, the product of some of this in the next six to nine months around, essentially, roadmaps for procurement for a client following the REVA stages. What do you need to do at what stage, with who, where, how, when? And that kind of thing is going to be a game changer because rather than then having to come to me on every single scheme and go, right, Dominic, we're at stage one. What do we do next? You'll go, OK, I've got my little guide. It's 15 pages. I, I know what to do. I'm confident that if I, you know, at stage one, do this, and or even just think about this, by the time I get to stage two, right, talk to Dominic or whoever, and it will just it will give everyone some confidence that there is a structure to follow that will allow you to procure insurance successfully. Do we have any questions from the floor or any um, any experiences that people have gone through on their own projects? Just one here. Uh, hi everyone, uh, Alex Brock, pre-construction manager at BNK Structures. Um, ben. Uh, we know you on a couple of projects, uh, Dominic as well. We know you through the STA. Um, my question is, we, we've had another project knocked back this morning. Uh, Ten stories, steel frame, CLT decks by the insurance. Uh, it's sort of a two-parter, really. How much pressure can a developer put on the insurers to realise a mass timber project? And I guess for Dominic, what more can the construction industry do to really satisfy these queries? I think the first question was to me, wasn't it? Yeah, you want to say? Yeah. Um, so... Sometimes I feel really powerless in this. I mean, particularly as a developer who, I mean, there are, there are a dozen of us in our organization where, you know, we're a, kind of essentially a, a, a startup turned quasi grown up. Um, and we're trying to really force a change in how buildings are being procured and built and really thinking about the next generation and the world that they will inherit. And that's very natural for us as being, you know, I'm the second oldest in the business and, you know, only got a few grey hairs. And I feel particularly powerless talking to the likes of these huge insurance conglomerates. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite frank, I come from an architectural background and I don't understand it. And I, just, like they, they, I feel our in, uh, the incentives are so misaligned in terms of the way that what we're trying to do and how they're seeing things. And I feel that there are a lot of great organizations out there, great developers who are trying to pioneer this, but yet they're doing it on a very small scale as well. So um, I, I feel that I mean, the, 
developers are strategically placed within all of this to pull on all the specialisms of their design teams, the, the passion and the expertise that they have, and act as the conduit between these guys and the guys in suits. <laughs> um, but, 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 I, but, I feel, but I feel like that, that you know, that, that journey, I don't feel as though we're really able to, unless you've got a massive portfolio of buildings and you can say, well, you know, you know what, I'll take my insurance elsewhere. I don't feel that there's that clout because there's just, there's no, there's no financial incentive that we can draw upon this because situation normal is, you know, five years ago, yeah. you'd be able to find another insurer to underwrite it. Now you're in a position where you're saying, oh, well, I'll go to someone else and they'll go, there is no one else. Yeah, um, yeah. no, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think the I've I've long since realised, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet answer to your question. I'm afraid. Uh, from the developer side, I think I would just encourage you to to push and continue to push, um, because weight of pressure is being felt in the industry, whether whether they admit it or not. There's lots of swan legs flapping away under the water, even though they might look like they're carrying on serenely. And uh, that will keep, continue to have more of an impact if you keep pushing. So please don't give up. Um, at a personal level, and I, I think it was Gareth, I, I, I'm going to drop you in this, because I think it was you, and it, there was a beer involved, but um, I think it was you that said, uh, we, we started talking about pensions and where was your pension investment? Uh, and, and actually, you called me out on it, and I've changed where my pension's invested. Let's be honest, where does insurance money come from? It comes from us, ultimately. It's a lot of your pensions. And if everyone in this room decided to go away today, take their pension out of anything to do with fossil fuels, coal and steel, and stick it into, and let's, be on, let's not get into the world of greenwashing here, but let's call it a sustainable fund that is focusing on really positive things, that will start to have an impact because the money speaks. And if there's no money anywhere for anything other than sustainable solutions, that will, you know, so we have the power as people um, I think as an industry, in terms of giving my industry comfort in what you're doing, it's just around, it's the communication piece that I've already banged on about far too much, but it's also about, uh, it's, it's about education from the point of view of, I think, uh, to challenge you guys, I think there's been a little bit of running before we can walk, especially in the world of mass timber. We've gone from five million pounds, two-story buildings to 170 million pound, 26-story hybrid structures in about three years. Now, I, I, I'm super passionate about it, so I think that's really exciting, but are we genuinely confident in what we're doing here? And if we are, to a point, paint your colors to the mask. Say to the insurer, okay, I'll take a half a million pound fire excess if you can afford to, I know that's a big ask, but we've always gone to the insurance industry asking for conventional solutions to what is not a conventional, truly conventional problem. You're, everyone is out there saying, I want a property insurance uh, product that has a 500 quid excess on fire on my timber building. Now, okay, we probably can get that, but it's probably going to cost you an arm and a leg. If you were to look at another way of structuring it and say, I'm prepared to take on a bit more risk myself, because I truly believe in my product and I truly believe how safe what I've delivered is, I, that is powerful to an insurer to say, you know, I'm actually prepared to do that, rather than going, no, you have it all, insurer, hospital pass by. It's... It's, it's being so confident in what you're doing and how you're doing it. It's, it's somewhere between evidence and a sales pitch, if I'm honest. Um, it's finding that happy balance of we're doing this because it's the right thing to do and it's amazing, but also we're confident enough that we can back it up with, with, with evidence, with you know, 
we're peer reviewing every project that we're doing with a third-party fire engineer who may or may not be based in Switzerland, that kind of thing. We're, we're going external to a third-party consultant to look at our estimated maximum loss on the, pro on, the, on the project to give you as underwriters a second opinion on what you do. Now, I know that sounds flippant, but they kind of, they actually, we've done that recently and they took it really well. Uh, and ironically, the problem was far more with the risers than it was with anything to do with the timber in terms of what, what was a concern for the insurer when you really got to the granular detail. But that involved engaging a third party, spending a few thousand quid, getting someone else to look at the design at stage three and say, actually, what, what are the risks here? So I think I've gone a massive tangent again. Not at all. I, w I was going to say, um, we spoke before the panel about PI insurance as well. Are, are we opening a can of worms with about nine minutes to go to move on to, <laughs> to that as a topic, Stephanie? Uh, yes, is a short answer uh, with nine minutes to go. I think, um, yeah, PI insurance is very tricky. We're, de we're designers, we need PI insurance. Uh, if we are doing timber buildings, we have to declare that. Um, and it is part of um, a risk for us. Uh, where timber sits in terms of structures and architecture at the moment is a bit of a grey area. Uh, who take, I think water is actually in some ways perceived as a bigger risk because it's more likely to happen. Um, so, yeah, how we manage that risk, particularly as an architect, waterproofing in any building um, is something that we, we take really seriously, but particularly with timber, it can be catastrophic, particularly if it's left um, without kind of understanding those, the, the leak detection systems or having kind of those fail-safes in place. So, uh, without opening a huge can of worms, yes, PI insurance is, um, and after Grenfell, particularly in relation to fire, um, it's A, a lot, lot more expensive than it ever used to be, and B, um, it's more challenging and... If you're doing anything that deviates in any way from building regulations, uh, that's where the problems, the barriers come. It's just coming back down to the insurers engaging a lot more now and wanting to know detail. So, yeah, our PI, when we review it every year now, there's a, a whole load more questions, and you can see where they're relating to in terms of risk and et cetera. Um, but I think it's probably a good thing. It's another sort of aspect and a pair of eyes on the industry, and it can improve the ways we do things, especially when we are using new technology. So uh, one of the key concerns actually isn't final design, which often Stephanie or, or myself might be responsible as an architect or an engineer, but actually what happens whilst it's being built, because that's when it's got some of the greatest risks, um, when it's exposed to water, um, is, is one of the key ones. And so actually filtering back down and say, right, what's your management plan? How are you going to build it? How are you going to look after the building during such and end up feeding through and getting contractors involved early? It is actually helping improve the way we can potentially build these buildings. So it's all with communication now. I think everyone taking a little bit of ownership um, because if we want to reach this sort of achievement together and take um, really care about carbon and, and how much we're going to be spending, everyone has to take a bit of ownership along the way. And... Um, but the insurers, obviously, at the end there. Uh, <laughs> um, or at the beginning now. Well, at the beginning <laughs> now, yeah. So um, it's, it's scrutiny, and we're getting down to more detail, and, and, and maybe that's just a good thing. I was, I was, I was just, just thinking about this, but, but I, I wonder, actually, whether we need to be looking more at project-specific insurance rather than personal, like... Yeah. Profession, uh, professional indemnity because actually mm -hmm. if we're talking about having something that's far more collaborative and I mean like proper collaboration where you know everyone sits down understands the key drivers you know the purpose of you know the, the purpose of true collaboration between all of the consultants is to understand 
what everyone wants out of the project, not to see people as being blockers and the M&E consultant as being the person that's just going to trash the architectural design because they're going to put pipes and wires through everything and no you're going to put the steel <laughs> beams in all the wrong places. And, and actually, you, need, you actually want to start this with everyone in the same boat and everyone looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we want this project to be a force for good rather than actually looking at it on a kind of case-by-case -case basis. And it's something that we strive for on all of our projects is like is true collaboration where everyone understands the ins and outs and all the detail no matter how boring or interesting it might be that actually everyone can then defend it that the architect can defend the fire strategy that the fire engineer can defend the structural integrity you know it's, it's about all of these people working together and i think really that's Getting, getting everyone into that same boat and everyone caring about what we're producing yeah. is going to be a far better way of looking at it than what we're currently doing. Yeah, I would add to that. I think it's um, really important that, as well, we don't... Everybody buys into the kind of why. Why are we, why are we taking on this much more difficult challenge than if we were using um, you know, traditional construction techniques? Why are we doing this? And I think if everybody understands that why question, then your decision-making process is, okay, how are we going to achieve this? Why? Not, oh, you know, maybe actually it might be easier if we don't do that or if we change this. And it's kind of having that fundamental is absolutely critical in terms of the design narrative and bringing everyone on board and understanding, you know, why are we innovating? What, what, what can this project do? And um, I think one of the great things that's come out of architecture um, in terms of uh, defining that why, why question is architects declare. There's obviously structural engineers declare, which I think is all wrapped up in kind of built environment declare. It'd be, I don't know if there's an insurance declares. We're, we're doing it because we overshot the amount of carbon that we can use on an annual basis 40 days ago. Yeah. And we've still got 120 days until after the C word. So it's just it's just like we're we're using we're using too much carbon too quickly yeah. and we need to sort that out. And I mean, you know, that's that's the goal of yeah. everything that we should be striving towards. And then kind of again in the topic of, that you were talking about in terms of collaboration, I am loath to use the term, but sort of sustainability champion has always been quite a good um, tool and strategy to for, to give responsibility and ownership for coordinating. I mean, everybody still has to buy in and collaborate, but basically holding people accountable and coordinating um, that you know that why question of why we're doing it and making sure that everybody is kind of playing their part. And if there are any scope gaps, understanding that. And it's a bit like the kind of golden thread, if you like. It's having that kind of golden thread that's running through and making sure you've got the right documentation, you've got the right um, you know paperwork essentially to prove to insurers, to, develop, to clients, to um, fire engineers that everything we've done has gone through the processes required to make sure we're providing safe um, and insurable buildings for the right reasons. Excellent. Please put your hands together for, um, for our guests here.